Welcome to the latest Toby Haydokes, who's round designed to be informative and entertaining, but sadly not to be technically competent. Uh, do not adjust your speakers. It'll still sound a bit rubbish. Sorry. Well, this is delightful. Um, I was speaking to a 96-year-old lady this morning who was at the very dawn of Doctor Who, and now I'm speaking to a gentleman who brings us right up to date. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why he's talking to me about Doctor Who. My name is Michael Pickford, and I'm the current production designer on Doctor Who, and I've been, which I've been doing for the last sort of two and a half years. So how does a designer get a job on a television series like Doctor Who? Do you, do you pitch? Are you headhunted? How does it work in modern television? Well, I was, I suppose, to some degree headhunted. I mean, I was, I was approached by my agent to say that I'd been asked whether, whether would I be interested in being sort of, you know, to be selected for Doctor Who. And I went to see them and I sort of, not, I never thought that they'd be doing anything like this. Designing spaceships hadn't been entirely in, in my remit up to this point. But then I realised that actually looking, you know, looking at Doctor Who, you realise that it's as much about everything else as it is about space and time. It's, it's full of almost everything you could possibly imagine. The curious thing that strikes me about a show like Doctor Who is that in the old, in, you know, in, in Doctor Who as was, they had a different designer for every story, a different incidental musician, um, a different crew, a different director. In the whereas now there's, there's the same DOP, there is the same designers, there's the same musician. So is that a, a striving for a house style? But if so, how do you maintain a house style by a programme that's by its very nature changes time every every episode? I think it's maintained a certain sort of level of rightness about the whole thing. That's the whole thing is a consistency. Um, the, the, obviously, the TARDIS is a constant. And maybe where, say, the assistant lives, Clara, this, in current times, used to be Amy. They were, there's a certain way that they live, which is fairly consistent. But as with everything, you can change episode by episode. And you're in all over, all over the world, all over the universe, all over time. Doctor Who's always famously, simply because most television programmes are set in the same place and on Earth in the present day, Doctor Who's famously uh, often been constrained by budget. Do you find that the, the budget of Doctor Who is a difficult thing to overcome? Um, well, I've done it, it, yes, yes and no. It, it, to have some constraint is always quite useful because it means you don't, sort of, you're not going to be wasting money. It does get a little tight sometimes and you have to scrimp and save, but Was built for him was, was 
we were currently using. So one was getting used to the, seeing what had been done and going back over the years, what had, the things that were current, like you had to have a hexagonal console, otherwise um, it wouldn't be a TARDIS, would it? Mm-hmm. So certain things are constant. Then I thought, well, maybe one can improve and do this and that. And um, I had done engineering when I was at university, so I thought it be, and I knew that, that um, Stephen Moffat was after something a little more technical, something that looked as a could fly in a sense that, you know, if a child went onto it, they'd want to fiddle with everything and touch it and make it fly, but be too frightened. And so I was thinking, and then having actually, when I was at university, I actually had the pleasure and honour of meeting Barnes Wallace. And if I really think of people like, what would someone like he have come with it? And you have to start thinking, well, if it do this and then make it round, and then could you walk here and use all the space? And they just generally make something that looked And you, so you met Barnes Wallace. That's extraordinary. Did he, yes. did did he, uh, sort of impart any of the? Because we often think of designers as people that are very technical and draw things. But as a television designer, you must have to have to think about character. And he must have had sort of uh, there must have been an emotion behind what he did. Did he impart any of that to you in terms well, of what? He... I, I suppose in Australia, anyway, it was a very brief meeting. It was after a lecture. I was at, at Southampton at the university there, and he gave a lecture. He was actually the honorary society, which was the faculty of society, he came to give a lecture and he thought, well, you can't miss this, can you? And you had to go and sort of shake his hand at the end and knowing about such people, you know, having obviously seen the Dan Busters film and, you know, and swing wing aircraft and all this that he was into, you know, you realise that you've met someone who's actually done something. And so you, you then feel charged to do something yourself. Well, I have, for the remit of this podcast, I have various, a, few, a handful of stories uh, that I need to cross off. So I will mention them by name, and you can tell me your memories of them. So the first one uh, is, is, is a very prosaic one. It's Closing Time, which is the one set in the department wonderful, store. Wonderful, wonderful department store in, in Cardiff. It's um, House of Fraser, but it's called, I forget, oh, I, oh, I forget its proper name, because it was like an old store, an old-time Cardiff store, and it was... In fact, John Lewis were very helpful. They, they said we could film it there, but this other one, this one had such quality to it. It was such fun, and every, every department was different, and it was a bit like, are you being served, but a more modern version. And it was absolutely, you know, it was, you know, they were very kind to be filmed there, for, I think, for two or three nights when they were closed, and they were extremely helpful, and it, well, no, it, was, it was great fun. And then, of course, we had to rebuild the changing rooms in the studio because you had, had to go through to the cyber chamber and all that, so it was is it a different energy on something like closing time where you 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 know you've been out there in space or you've done historical ones and then you have to do one where you know the main set is apart from the shop is someone's house um, I mean is that as exciting to you and where where do you decide how do, do you then go to the script and the character to try and reflect how somebody's house would look you've got to look at it like that and in fact I mean, I mean many years ago I suppose I had the sort of privilege of doing a film called With Lane and I where yeah. the house was sort of had to reek of character and so now it's fun to put in bits and pieces to make things look make things look lived in it's like we just recently done yeah, the flat where Clara lives the present assistant and you just you put as much effort and into that as you would do to the cyber spaceship and then everything balances and what you don't want is to be rather suddenly become bored because oh, it's a bit of a dull set you want to make everything be a feast for the eyes as you mentioned with now and i now i was going to bring it up later but i mean you can't have had any idea when you were 
doing that that it would go on to become a film that certainly my generation of university students treated as a bible <laughs> well indeed it is and it is i mean absolutely it is beautifully written the words you can almost tell bruce that he, could do, he should do it on the radio because <laughs> the words are so perfect and actually the stage directions are always spoken by the eye character it, it's, it's a beautiful beautiful film though as you said it was I, when i read the script I laughed out loud, and my wife said it must be a funny script. And indeed, it's very black, but very funny because it's so precisely wittedly written. And it was great fun finding the cottage and then doing, then having to do everything in it just got better and better. But we had obviously no idea at the time quite what it would become. Jumping from closing time, uh, the the doctor, the widow, and the wardrobe was that your uh, was was that your Narnia? Well, indeed, yes. You had to bring in bring in all the all the, all the, all the allegory you could possibly find, and it was a wonderful house we found actually down in Tranefly, um, Staley Castle, which had a fantastic staircase. It had the sort of the right mood. I mean, everything about it was was splendid, and we actually filmed on a on a Lancaster bomber. So, I mean, that's that's the sort of the remit of Doctor Who. I mean, you've got no idea where. It, <laughs> And when you say we, because obviously you, you you know you're in charge of the look, but what sort of size team do you have doing things like locating a Lancaster bomber and locating a house? Well, we, we, uh, we just let me have a, you know, the location managers and um, a location manager, and I have a very good art department. And you know, my art director was looking around as he was looking into as if someone had was hiring a cockpit. He had a cockpit. He put on a lorry and brought, brought around the country. But we never found it was cheaper to actually go to the Lancaster <laughs> itself. They were. They gave us a much better rate, so we all went up to Lincolnshire and filmed. And it's not it's not the one that flies. It could fly, I think, but it's not rated for flying. But it taxes around. We we just we didn't have the engines running fast. But but it was rather rather wonderful to sit in a Lancaster that actually flown in the Second World War. It was it came to a lot like meeting Barnes Wallace in a way. Full circle. Well, bringing us up to, to date with the the, the the latest episodes, the season openers tend to, like the bells of St John, tend to sort of fly about all over the place. So, do you have to be quite careful about what you spend on different sets? Because you, I mean, that started with the monks and the outside, and then then you've got the big city offices of um, uh, Celia Emery and 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 you're in Clara's house as well. So. So when you go about getting 96 iPads, then what happens to them? Do you have to then... Well, uh, sadly, sadly, uh, we had to have have security there every night to make sure they stayed on the wall. But um, (laughs) they were hired. They're a very good rate, actually. They're a very good rate, but it's quite a lot of... They had to get programmed, each one, to have the... You know, then we had to keep charging them up. Well, and then the, the next episode, you have a massive contrast, and you have to do something that you tend to only see in in the movies. Is you have to do an alien market, which I thought was very inventively shot in the rings of Akar Ten. In that there's a, a lot on screen, but a lot of it shot quite close. I mean, were you limited with space there? And and and. Do you have... well, I mean, this is, the, this is one of the one of the sort of the secrets of Doctor Who. I mean, that the, the basis of the market was the, the London the London streets for the Christmas special. <laughs> which we had to build partly shot a lot of it in Britain. 
client in the studio, and um, we, we we built a sort of section of Lunet Street, sort of as it went to Kensey in London, and but then that got revamped, as, they, as we say, into a distant planet. But it was a bit, it was a bit like when then you took back the queue. It was like the sort of if Star Wars had had a market. <laughs> That's what yes. it would have been like, you know. Well, and so when you mentioned Star Wars, I mean, and you mentioned that, you know, science fiction hadn't necessarily been particularly on your radar. Is it a genre that you enjoy, or is it one that you had to sort of gen up on when you got the job because... Well, I don't know, gen up, I mean, it's, uh, I suppose it's in doubt. I think I would have to say generally that the, the, the sort of... Science fiction, space films of the sixties and have rarely been beaten <laughs> in terms of look and feel because there's something inventive about them and very straightforward in a funny way. It's like early Star Trek and and somehow the, the slightly quasi mechanical space works very well for Doctor Who and also now with also any LED technology is so good now you can do the most magical things so you can have this wonderful mixture of. It's a bit like a Apollo 13 when you can, you've got the most advanced craft in the world, but you're flying it on cardboard boxes and bits of string to get it back home. <laughs> and that, that's somehow Doctor Who. Well, I always felt, I mean, I, I do a one-man show about Doctor Who, and I, I said that one of the appeals is, I th- this is the reason I love your design of the TARDIS, by the way, is because I feel that the, 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 the Doctor, um, it's, it's not the slickest spaceship in the world. The beauty is... That he's 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 somebody that's muddling through and improvising, whereas in Star Trek I always felt they had the best ship in the fleet, and therefore they I couldn't quite identify with them because they were too perfect. Doctor, I felt that when I was designing the just personal TARDIS, I was thinking that the Hadron Collider was all in the news, and you kept seeing pictures of this wonderful machine, and so we thought, well, the Doctor Who would have to have some of that, and so that was that, and a touch I think with in fact the doorways are a slight take on the cross-section of a Wellington bomber. And the um, and I thought, well, you've got to make the top do something that all about the console has always had a, a lot of stuff going on about, but it's never done anything on any of the other TARDISes. And so I thought, well, if you could make these rings up there revolve and then, I thought, even contra-rotate. And I, was, and I had a sort of James Watt kettle moment looking at the microwave at home wondering if, if, if I fixed the wheels and the microwave would try and put them backwards if we held the thing. And I thought, ah, so if we could put wheels like that between all the bits, we could turn one ring and the other rings would all go in a different direction. And it seems to be very popular, everyone loves it because you turn this, turn the switch and these things, it's like a cylindrical, compute, cylindrical slide rule in a way, as if it's computing the journey that the TARDIS is about to take. Yeah, I think it's fa- absolutely fabulous. Well, um, and well, well, okay. Well, in terms of that, what about something like the practical element of something like Cold War, where you have to have a sort of atmospheric submarine set, but it has to be shootable. Well, it, yes, well, it was. I mean, it was very funny this, because of the way the scripts were arriving. This suddenly got pulled forward, and we had a fortnight to build a nuclear submarine. <laughs> So um, you can imagine there was a sort of a lot of hard work, and I sort of found some cross-section, basically pieced together the sort of the essence of what we were really after. And so we had various sections, of it, and because it's in a in a cylinder, we thought we had different levels. So sort of the angle of the side wall being either vertical or sloping in or sloping under would give you the feeling of being in this contained vessel. And then and then I saw a picture of missile silos on a on a submarine. I thought, oh well, this is rather good. So we had one section. And of course, it was all ruptured as well, so that was fun. And a lot of pipe work, and a, we studied K-19, the Widowmaker, got heavily studied, if I remember, because that, yeah. that was a very good set on that. Or, we couldn't quite have managed as many pipes as they'd got on, but we did pretty well. 
Well, and then in complete contrast, you you, you so for, you 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 then go to a haunted house with Hyde. But also, what I thought the thing with Hyde was that that sort of blasted heath as well of the outside. And what struck me about that episode was the colour palette was very stark and very pastel and very interesting. And I wondered if you if a director talks to you about the the sort of look that he's going for, and if sometimes your set looks different to how you expected because of the the colour palette the director brings to it. In, in the uh, the journey to the centre of the TARDIS episode, they're sort of fighting their way through the ship. I mean, were you, were you having to be ingenious there? And was that did that involve a lot of redressing of sets? Well, there, there, there was some um, redressing of the main central console that's redressed on several times for that. But luckily, we'd sort of um, developed the new TARDIS because it was more adaptable. We could take the central console out, which we did for a subsequent episode. You could get more control over what you were doing. But we had to build, you know, certain other sets, lots of sets elsewhere, tunnels and corridors and shafts and things to, to you know, that, and, and eyes of harmony and all sorts of strange things had to get built. So there were, there weren't too much, one couple got redressed, but most of them were, um, you know, different parts of the TARDIS. I loved the bit, there was a scene where the, there was the bit that um, Ashley Walters' character stole, stole a light. And it was so, oh, yes, it was very clever that, because it was so beautiful, you felt that he was actually defiling something. You know that. Yes, no, yes, it was interesting. I thought, yes, because it's making as if it was going to try and make it give it a slightly organic feel. But in fact, it was sort of based. I remember we'd actually be, when we did the cowboy film, you know, the Western one, um, not Al Maria, it was Alicante. We'd gone there for a repeat first off, first time. And there was an incredible a tree, rather like a banyan tree, which I'd seen in India. And I took some photographs of it. And then when I saw this, thinking of how we did this, I thought, well, actually, yes, this tree that was growing roots, and if you made a rather silvery blue version of a banyan tree and had these glowing lights on it, it would have a sort of a technical yet organic feel. And we had to make these lamps that would, these, these sort of like, or like ostrich eggs that would glow. That was an interesting problem. They had batteries and things inside. <laughs> it was all quite fun. Well, and talking of balancing technical and organic, when the Cybermen come in um, Nightmare in Silver, um, that Neil Gaiman creates very specific, almost sort of Mervyn Peaky type worlds, doesn't he? So you're, I, I always find his, his episodes tend to be in, in very much their own reality. And does that does that get reflected in the way that you approach the design of them? Well, well that was a, this had to be a sort of theme park of the universe, as it were. It's like Fort Park gone wrong, you know. And um, we actually managed to use Castel Cock, which is the, the, 
a sort of castle that Marquis would be rebuilt in the late 19th century. And it's really toy town, sort of, look, it's, it was, it's sort of arch medieval, <laughs> but it's sort of brand new. And so it had a slightly Walt Disney quality to it. We managed to use that, which helped a lot to give to set, to, to have somewhere that was both fascinating and exciting and available for use. And it was the waxworks, wasn't this, and all the things. It was, it, was a, it was an interesting mixture of things to try and um, give the idea of this enormous theme park. Well, I've been quite prescriptive there in my choice of stories because they were the ones I needed to knock off, but I wondered if there was if there was any particular work on the series that you'd done that, that you found especially challenging that you were most pleased that you'd pulled off. it's balancing that the Doctor Who's job is always to balance the fantastical with the with the down to earth. Yes, and the more real you make what people know, the more believable the science fiction becomes. And although you're a, you, you know, as you say, you were a slight stranger to Doctor in that sense, not entirely because um, your father was William Mervyn, uh, a fine actor who crossed swords with William Hartnell in the 1960s. in charge of the computer that was supposedly on top of the te- telephone tower. That's right. Tower. Oh, yes. And then that was, quite, and it was a three-part episode, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, it was four episodes, yes, absolutely. Four. Yes, yes. yes. Um, no, 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 that, that, was, that was quite fun. So, in a way, and with, with, uh, what, is, what is actually quite fun with my our youngest daughter has been working as a standby art director and, um, yeah, and art director as well. And so we've had... Well, I think that that's a that's a, a, a an illustrious uh, place in the annals of the show. Um, well, with your with your father's back uh, being an actor and a very well known actor, um, uh, I've just been watching him in Mr. Rose, in which I think he's absolutely oh, yeah. fabulous. It's a great show. Um, did did that influence the fact that you ended up working in television? Do you think, albeit in a Shepperton, and he spoke to the art director. He said, "Oh, tell your 
one to ring up the construction manager. And with great trepidation, I did. And he said, come and see me. And he introduced me to a, a designer or art director, as designers were then called, who needed somebody in the art department to help out because they were very short and there was an appetized job and it meant they got a union card. So it was so I sort of just, I find myself doing it. And 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 so how, how did it develop from there? You just, you just gradually sort of um, learnt as you went and, and, and moved up and... Yes, and I thought, remember the first day, I think it worked. One day I might be an art director myself. It was like it was on a, a, a building, it was a Belting Brothers film, The Twisted Nerve. So I, I, at least I started in an illustrious company. <laughs> but, uh, well, because when you got the job on Doctor Who, I have to say I remember thinking, oh, but he's a he's a film designer. And is, is the delineation between f- film and television much more blurred now then? Because well, I would have thought... It's, 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 it's less blurred, I think, in America because you get all the big actors do television because they, they know it's going to happen, don't they? And um, but here, there's still a certain sort of like it's almost class distinction between film and television. To those in film, those in television, they're, they're making it. Well, they, they do the same work whether it was a film or on television. It's 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 the, it's the same thing. And I've done you know lots of television films as well. I mean, like Longford and. Sweeney Todd and all sorts of wonderful films that, in a way, often more fun than films because they're they're rather good stories usually and rather interesting things to have to work on. But is there anything you can tell me about the challenges you faced for the fiftieth anniversary special? Well, there indeed. I mean, it, it's composite in three D, and there were. I mean, there was, it was. I mean, it's usual that the challenges to make obviously it had to be seriously good because it was the fiftieth anniversary. So. Can you understand why Doctor Who is on November the twenty third has reached this massive milestone? Do you, do you see what the appeal of the show is? Well, I think it's, it's sort of serious, but not serious. It's quite—it's it's always very frightening. For, it's basically very frightening for children. I was never a ch- quite a child enough to be when it first came out to be that frightened. But it was slightly alarming. The concept, I think, when you think about maybe. There are people out there doing things or whatever, you know, and even when you're Daleks, it's like you're, you're frightened by a mosquito in a funny way. So the Daleks were quite alarming in a, because the concept that these machines could actually do that because you're, on a film you're always told things. You believe them unless there's any good reason for not believing it. And I think in a sense now the world could do with the Doctor Who. I mean, he could go to Syria, he could go to Afghanistan and sort a few things out. You know, this is, um, and it's, I think the idea that Well, that's lovely. Um, well, um, as you know, um, you've received nothing for this, I received nothing for this, but we, we would like a charity to benefit. So uh, if you'd care to nominate your charity, Michael. Well, there's a charity that's a local charity, which is run by someone local in Oxford. Um, it's called the Children's Radio Foundation, and it gets money to give children in villages in Africa little miniature radio transmitters so they can transmit news to each other and get and, and educate themselves. Um, 
so the final question is Doctor Who is 50 this month as we record this um, and lots of Doctor Who fans will be watching your work on November the 23rd um, and they'll be watching they've been watching Doctor Who for the past 50 years or, or, or as much as they can if, however long they've lived so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there to this podcast in this 50th year thank you very much for watching and um, I hope we can go on entertaining you for a lot longer well, Michael Pickwood, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That one was rather delayed uh, because obviously the sound quality wasn't terrific. It was even worse than that, but thanks to uh, Nick Randall and David Nagel, uh, one of whom I've never met, just the lovely thing about the internet, sending out an SOS. Um, did their best to make it slightly audible. It was a last-minute technical glitch, which meant that the way I'd intended to record it didn't work on Michael's phone, and I need to get the interview done. So, sorry. Um, please don't write in. I know it sounded rubbish. Thanks very much. Uh, next one will sound a bit better. That one with Michael was obviously recorded on the day of the uh, Dorothy Rose Gribble interview, so it's slightly out of uh, sync time-wise, so we'll return to the uh, normal timetable, which finds us uh, with only half a dozen stories left to knock off before the end of 2013 and the uh, time limit I'd set myself on the task. Uh, Michael Pickwode's charity is Children's Radio Foundation, which is childrensradiofoundation.org. It's all one word, it's all small case, uh, and it's uh, although it's local to him in Oxford, uh, it's also a worldwide charity, so um, on their donate page you can do so uh, in the USA or in South Africa as well. So hopefully uh, they'll benefit uh, in your neighbourhood, uh, from your neighbourhood, uh, wherever you may be listening to this from. My thanks to Matt Fitton, from Big Finish, who casually mentioned, I think someone he knew knew Michael Pickwode's wife. I think it might have been his mum. Uh, And this is the way that showbiz contacts are harvested for this uh, particular um, somewhat disorganised and tuppenny hapenny podcast that I hope, nevertheless, has entertained you this time. And uh, see ya. Uh, Because I've seen one of the first drafts of the radio series, radio scripts, uh, for a Hitchhiker's Guide. And uh, so I'd seen this, it had been offered, and I thought this was a guy with enormous talent, which he, which he had, and uh, took him on and, and commissioned him for his first, gave him his first commission, BBC. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare to open your eyes and expand your minds in the presence of the one, the only... George Wilson! Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Torchwood, The Conspiracy. I'd like you to meet Jack Harkness, the guy I was telling you about. He writes for Plexus magazine. Great, well, far away. Okay, maybe we could start by talking about the committee. You say your contacts wish to remain anonymous because they fear for their lives. Yet you talk about this stuff, and you haven't been killed. Uh, not yet, no. But you think the committee might one day have you assassinated? It's a very real possibility. Sam! I'm gonna come up there and get you down, okay? No! They said if you try and help me, they'll kill us both! They all have to die someday. If they're already on Earth, then the committee is everywhere. In every government. In every boardroom on every TV screen. 
They look like you or me. In fact, every time you turn on the TV or open a newspaper, they are staring you in the face. And I am coming for them. <laughs>